Hey, Al, so now that we're done with Operation Zero Tolerance, I've been thinking about... We're we're not exactly done with Operation Zero Tolerance, Miles, and this episode's going to be all about the events that spin out of it. Okay, okay, so now that we're done with comics with the Operation Zero Tolerance logo on their cover, I've been thinking about... About what? About Operation Zero Tolerance. <sighs> I mean, the implications of this event should have affected so many superheroes and supervillains, both practically and philosophically. Why didn't we see more of that? We saw some. You already covered Spider-Man's fight with Marrow, and Venom was sent to intimidate J. Jonah Jameson out of investigating Bastion and Operation Zero Tolerance. Who sent him? Venom never really seemed like much of a team player. Well, the government had put a bomb in his chest to get him to cooperate. Huh, okay. Uh, man, what is it with the government implanting things in supervillains? That never goes well. It didn't. Especially when Venom intimidate us murder. Damn it, Eddie. I assume Spider-Man showed up to stop him, though, right? He did, but it was an unexpectedly challenging fight, thanks to... Spidey's ambiguous bond with the alien symbiote? No, he was pretty much over that by this point. Jameson's distracting yelling voice? Still no. I think Pete's gotten used to JJJ's ranting. Then what? Nasal congestion from a really bad cold. What?! I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for Jay Edidin while he's on parental leave. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 397 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And thanks to listener Julian K. for that cold open idea. We've done a lot of cold opens, so ideas are always appreciated. And welcome to our first regular episode of the new year. We have specialed our winter, and we are diving right back into continuity. Yeah, we're going to be looking at, well, a, a saber-tooth special, which is a little bit off the beaten path, but it does actually have some important things for later issues of X-Factor, and then we're going to be looking at those later issues of X-Factor. See how neatly we tie these things together? This is why we are professionals. <laughs> But before we jump in too far, so um, if you've listened to the last couple of episodes, listeners, you already know. But if not, uh, Jay is on parental leave right now. Um, he had a kid who, by the way, is doing great. Everything's going really well in that direction. And, you know, he's off uh, preventing that child from having to confront their alternate past self, Kang the Conqueror. So that's keeping Jay pretty occupied. Uh, so for right now, me and Al Kennedy from the excellent podcast House to Astonish, we're just going to be keeping on keeping on talking about, you know, Sabretooth being the least trustworthy member of an X-Team ever again. Yeah, if I had a nickel for every time Sabretooth was on an X-Team and he then betrayed them and tried to kill them, I'd have two nickels, which isn't much, but it's weird it happened twice. <laughs> so, Al, you and I were talking before the episode, and you had mentioned that you had been a reader of X-Factor in the 90s, right? I was, yeah. I mean, I came on to X-Factor at the time of Executioner's Song because they obviously crossed over into X-Factor, and I'd never read X-Factor before. And it was 
quite lucky actually that those were the issues that um i picked up on because those had that incredible run of j lee guest art which just blew me away you know i was 12 or whatever and i'd never seen anything like this before so i was completely knocked to the side by this and i just stuck with it after that and read it to the end of, of peter david's run read it through um you know all the stuff with haven and um multiple man's death and all that kind of thing and then when the team changed over again i had a a a brief stopover with them i think i i dropped the book eventually around issue 120 or so um because whilst i i really liked a lot of the the characters on the team i really liked the fact that it was kind of c and d list characters which really is my absolute favorite thing um it it was just not hitting for me anymore and uh of course by that time of course i had um i'd found a new comic which i loved which was x-man which i mean I'll, I'll never say that i had great taste as a teenager sometimes we make mistakes <laughs> you know i read most of x-man as an adult like in my in my 30s and it's true that it didn't quite uh, hit there for me, but I can completely understand how that book would have been amazing for a teenager. The only reason I didn't read it myself is because I had a big comic gap shortly after it started, shortly after the return from the Age of Apocalypse when Nate Gray was in Earth-616. But, like, mm-hmm. Nate Gray would be the teenager we all wanted to be. Oh, I desperately wanted to be Nate Gray. Like, I wanted to have that haircut. I mean, now I would just settle for hair, frankly. <laughs> Uh, you know, just running around, wearing net shirts, having every single female character within like a hundred mile radius think you're the best thing ever, <laughs> having so much power that it was actively dangerous to you and no one really understood what it was like. And the way that that manifested in practice was that he just had to keep a pack of Kleenex in his pocket just to mop up the little nosebleeds. Apart from that, he seemed fine. Right. That many psychic nosebleeds, though, that can't be healthy. Like, that would really mess up your sinuses. I really worry about Eleven and Stranger Things, because that happens every time. Definitely. She must be perpetually just snotting blood into tissues. Just really disgusting. No, no, it's it's not very dignified. It's it's hard enough being a teenager. (laughs) Uh, But we digress, as we so often do on this show. Uh... So, we're a little bit past uh, the point that you mentioned, Al, where you stopped reading, Uh, so maybe we should talk about what happened previously on X-Factor. X-Factor is dead. Not really. After breaking away from their government handlers, the formerly government-sponsored mutant team faked their own death and got their Virginia headquarters sealed off as a biohazard site. They faked their own death? Oh, Professor X would be so proud. (laughs) This new underground iteration of X-Factor is, is actually not so new. Its members are still pretty much the same, for instance. Yeah, you've got Forge, who is their team leader, who is a grumpy technopath, as he has been much entirely since he joined the X-Men. There's longtime X-Factor member Polaris, the sometimes-possessed Mistress of Magnetism. There's Shard, who is a holographic recreation of a dead future cop sister of Bishop's. And Mystique, the shape-shifting villainous manipulator extraordinaire, there against her will. Mm. Talking of people there against their will, Sabretooth is also part of the team at the moment. He is a killer with animalistic strength, speed, senses, and savagery. And last and 
ideally not least, Wild Child, a more moral but often less interesting version of Sabretooth, here from Alpha Flight. Sabretooth at this point is captive of X-Factor. He's got a shock collar on that activates every time he tries to kill anybody he's not supposed to, which is pretty much anybody. He's no stranger to being the captive of an X-Team. He was incarcerated by the X-Men for a while before rejecting their psychological treatment and trying to kill them all. But, I mean, surely Bloodthirsty Lightning can't strike twice. He wouldn't also betray and attack X-Factor, would he? We probably don't need to answer that, but we will, starting with Sabretooth Back to Nature number one, Homicidal Tendencies. This issue is written by Jorge Gonzalez, has art by Frank Taran, colors by Shannon Blanchard, and letters by Comicraft. So, some of this creative team may seem familiar. Jorge Gonzalez, uh, we saw do the Magneto miniseries, the Sabretooth and Mystique miniseries. He's going to do the Maverick ongoing. He also wrote Professor Xavier and the X-Men, which... I don't think we've covered that in the show. Uh, Al, are you familiar with that series at all? Was that the one that was, like, it was part of the 99 Cent line? That was, it ran as a kind of companion title to Untold Tales of Spider-Man? Uh, it, it, I think so. The main thing I remember about it was that it was sort of like a retelling of Silver Age stories, but in a yeah. more a more 90s style. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Uh, as for Frank Taran, this was my first exposure to him. And I remember before the episode, we were talking about really digging his style. I love it. What it really reminds me of is around this point in time, Leonardo Manco was doing some amazing stuff at Marvel. He was doing, um, I think he'd just come off of doing um, some fill-in stuff on a cable, even possibly. Um, and he, certainly he was going on at this stage to do the Deathlock ongoing uh, with um, uh, Joe Casey writing it, which I think is a really fun book it doesn't <laughs> run very long you can read the whole of um the the casey and manko deathlock in an afternoon um i may my favorite thing about it is the fact that the main villain of it is the clown from the circus of crime which of all the people to put up against deathlock it, you'd go a long way through the official handbook before you landed on him i think um but he's gonna shortly after this go on to do a uh, werewolf by night for the very short-lived strange tales imprint um and he has this wonderfully scratchy almost vertigo style and you don't see a lot of it in marvel comics for real yeah um it reminded me also a little of um guy davis's style on bprd like there's that sketchiness to it that scratchiness like you said but there's also the fact that the characters they don't they don't look ugly exactly, that's the wrong word, but they look less like airbrushed, glamorous, glamorous supermodel-y than you generally get in a superhero comic for like every single character. They look more like people with their, you know, more irregular faces and odd, sometimes asymmetrical features and stuff, and that works for a book like this. It really does. I mean, the the fact that we're going to be looking later at an issue which is drawn by Jeff Matsuda in full like rock and roll style where he is really leaning into distorting faces but it looks less good than the distorted faces in this comic where there is you see there's a more naturalized kind of approach to it um people look strange because people look strange and not people look strange because somebody's decided that you know their mouth should be up next to their eyes or something like that 
I think you're thinking of the same panel I am from one of the yeah. X Factor issues we're going to yeah. cover. Yeah, we'll uh, get to that one. But all of that to say, the most important thing about Frank Terran actually has nothing to do with his art or even directly him. According to Xenopedia, because Terran did a couple of Aliens comics, so he gets to be in Xenopedia, uh, Terran's uncle, Gerard Martaulis, constructed his own functioning rocket pack. That's awesome. It is. I could find no more information on it, so <laughs> I guess we can just take Xenopedia's word for it. I am going to go and add a bunch of interesting stuff to Xenopedia for other artists that are just going to be complete complete fictions. Excellent. But they're going to make them all really, really fascinating people. I mean, My Uncle Built a Rocket Pack is it, it's a great name for a Netflix stand-up special. <laughs> In the words of the Tick from the underrated live-action Tick miniseries, uh, the first one, not the second one, I'm not making it up, I'm making it good. <laughs> So, speaking of good things, we've had Sabretooth solo stories before. We had the gloriously bananas Sabretooth Death Hunt, or Sabretooth Gone Hunting, as the case may be, which was full of ninjas and explosives and tuxedo fights on the top of the Eiffel Tower. We had the Sabretooth and Mystique miniseries that we just mentioned, full of techno-torturers and cyborg dominatrixes and piranha fights, and and, and now we have this one-shot. Uh, we'll also have... Uh, 2004 mini by Daniel Way, full of Canada fights, and the recent 2022 mini by Victor Laval about Krakoa's Pit later. So this is, I guess, like the the middle Sabretooth solo item. This will be the linchpin around which the eventual Sabretooth epic collection will revolve. That's right. Listeners, you had no idea this episode was so significant, but mark (laughs) our words. So we open at Estevan Point on Vancouver Island in Canada with a dude wading onto a houseboat, paralyzing a happy couple with blowgun darts, and then, like, torture-murdering them all to death. So so welcome to this comic, I guess. It's a desperately inefficient way of doing it, I would have said. Like, if you're needing to get out onto a boat, then we've, we've worked out ways to do that, and they're called boats. Like, get a boat onto the boat. Not to, to just walk out into the water. I, I feel like this serial killer um, might have multiple areas where his judgment is perhaps a little a little subpar, uh, including <laughs> the, the serial killing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's, he's one of these um, murderers who is inappropriately pally with his victims. He actually addresses them as comrades, which I think that if you address someone as comrades, you probably should at the very least like make them a cup of tea and bring them a biscuit before you literally murder them with a machete. Because otherwise it seems insincere. But alas, as the narration tells us, accompanied by the blood-curdling screams of the hapless victims, the unrelenting act of butchery proceeds long into the night. So, uh... I guess content warning. This is a a, a pretty dark comic. Uh, it, it it doesn't stop being dark. Yeah, yeah. And we we catch up with Sabretooth um, when he's doing his little wander around underneath the uh, the tunnels under the X Factor Falls Edge base, where he is killing time effectively. Uh, specifically, he's trying to get better at resisting his government implanted shot collars anti violence shocks by trying to kill a. A sewer snake. Okay, I have questions. Uh, question one, why is there a massive system of sewer catacombs under Falls Edge? Like, is that standard in government bases? <laughs> it's the first thing they build, is the catacombs. 
like they get the contractors in and they have a look at the, the architectural plans and the contract contractors like oh mate you've not planned for enough catacombs under here how are you gonna have uh any brave escapes into the night yeah that is not up to code like that no, is that is really not the base requirement okay fat good point good point but are there enough snakes in sewers that this plan seems efficient? Like, is that a standard thing in these up-to-code catacombs or what? Well, I think it is, it's just the way when you're XP farming, isn't it, really? You wander around this same bit of the world for ages looking for a dozen snakes and suddenly there's nowhere to be found. Ah, oh, it's rough. And, you know, they are carrying around like little bits of armor and money and it's, it's very confusing. <laughs> Well, upstairs, Wildchild is on the video phone with Alpha Flight's Puck, his old teammate. Uh, Puck here actually looks a lot like Bob Hoskins when he played Mario in the Mario Brothers movie, a I, movie that I will defend. That was literally the first thing I thought when I saw him as well. I was just like, wow, they have really nailed that likeness of they Bob have. Hoskins as Mario. <laughs> so Bob Hoskins, if you're listening, and if this uh, pivotal Sabretooth comic ever gets adapted, like th- there's a role for you, man. Yeah, I think if Bob Hoskins is listening, then it would have to be via live Ouija board link up. Um, but, you know, if, if they ever managed to um, digitally animate him, uh, as they seem to be doing with a lot of other deceased actors, then uh, we can definitely slot him into that role. I'm into this. Also, I didn't know Bob Hoskins died. Aww. Yeah, a while ago now. I don't pay enough attention. Uh but I really do love the way Wild Child is depicted here. Uh, we've talked on the show before about how Wild Child, like, every, every character keeps talking about how ugly he is. And he's all sad because he's so ugly. And he just sort of looks like a dude. But here, it's not so much that he looks like an ugly person exactly, but he looks so genuinely animalistic. Not just in a, I have big fangs, but like he, his face looks kind of like a, like a dog face. Like he has those sort of big, largely black, round, shiny eyes that you'll see on, on some dogs. And like his features are kind of lengthened and elongated. Like it, it works so well. And what I really appreciate is he looks that way and he still looks very distinct from Sabretooth, who is his own version of animalistic. Yeah, and I think Wellchild has always kind of struggled to come out from Sabretooth's shadow, which is weird because they're the only reason that we even associate them with each other to begin with is because of the Age of Apocalypse. Um, you know, before then, they were, I mean, I, I say they were separate characters. Wellchild was clearly created because somebody felt Alpha Flight needed their own Wolverine, um, which is, again, a little bit ironic given that Wolverine is Alpha Flight's Wolverine. Oh, man. So he was first in the shadow of Wolverine and Alpha Flight, and now he's in the shadow of Sabretooth and X-Factor. <laughs> yeah. Guy can't catch a break. He really can't. Uh, and related to that, there's what this call is about. The woman who was killed, one of the two victims, that was Wildchild's ex-girlfriend, and he is messed up by this whole thing, understandably. And Puck's trying to shield Wildchild from the details because they're really gruesome, and Wildchild's like, no, tell me literally everything as like tears are running down his face in shock and then in fury like the writing is fine in this book but the art is great actually it's really sensational stuff like i was trepidatious going into this because thinking oh a saber tooth one shot from the mid 90s bet this is going to be good and it turns out actually it's pretty good right so, Al, you mentioned having read X-Factor for a while, albeit not up to this point. You got out while you could, which was probably yeah. the right call. Um, what's your take on Wildchild? Because he always seemed a weird addition to the team to me. 
I I really like Wildchild. I like Wildchild as a character who um he was always one of those sorts of characters who I only knew from trading cards until the Age of Apocalypse came along, at which point I was like, oh, I've seen this guy before in like the official handbook of the Marvel Universe or whatever. Um but he's he's like a sort of saber tooth that you can have in your house. You know, he's he's like you know when they did um Saturday morning cartoon versions of R-rated movies. You know, it's like the Robocop cartoon or whatever. <laughs> um, that's very much what, what Wildchild is like for me. He's the chibi saber tooth. Oh, man. Yeah, they did so many of those. There was Little Shop of Horrors where Audrey 2 was an adorable sidekick. Beetlejuice where Beetlejuice was an adorable sidekick. Yeah, they did one of the, the Swamp Thing movie, which had that great take on um, Wild Thing by the Trogs as the theme tune, which was so so good i had no idea about that i i know what i'm checking out after this episode oh and it's like it it literally the theme tune goes like swamp thing you are amazing (laughs) yeah that is astonishing um pretty good so Sabretooth, I guess, was done with his getting six snake pelts or whatever. He overheard this video call, and it turns out he knows this killer based on the description of the way things went down. This was a machete murderer named Chop Chop, who has a big brother named Yuri, who is himself a murderer, but instead of using machetes, just, like, uh, punches people a whole lot. Um, Yuri is also addicted to lots of drugs, including painkillers, which will be surprisingly relevant as we go along. Yeah, Chop Chop was not the kind of name I thought they were going to go for for this guy. Like, if you were a machete murderer and in the press they start calling you Chop Chop, you sound like a sidekick from a Scooby-Doo series from the 1980s or something like that. You know, um, it it pretty much has a name like a a G.I. Joe character. It's not the kind of way to build a reputation as someone who's to be feared if you're going around with a name like Chop Chop. Sabretooth doesn't exactly uh, lean out of that either. Like the way that he gives his exposition dump is very much like he's reading the details verbatim off the back of Yuri and Chop Chop's action figure packaging. <laughs> you are not wrong. Which, come to think of it, could very well have been written by another Marvel writer because I think Larry Hama created all like the plots and backgrounds for all of the GI Joe characters. Yeah, and you wrote the series for ages, but yeah, no, that could absolutely be right. Oh, man. <laughs> and a man who is no stranger to writing Wolverine either, so. Very true. Oh, Larry Hama. I mostly love him. So Sabretooth insists on coming along, since only he knows enough about these killers, Yuri and <coughs> Chop Chop, to uh, be able to find them. But Wildchild hates this plan. He hates being paired with Sabretooth in any way, as he says. Let's get a few things straight, Creed. You and I are not alike. At least not in any ways that matter. Like you said, you're nothing but a cold-blooded killer. Without conscience, without remorse. I'm none of those things. Whatever similarities we may share are only surface deep. And it sickens me that you should even dare to suggest that I try to take after you. See, this is how you make Wild Childs work. Like, you put him in a situation where he has to prove that he's different, where the point is that he's kind of similar to Sabretooth, and he doesn't like that fact. Use the redundancy as a plot device, not just a way that makes it feel like the character shouldn't be on the team. Yeah, absolutely. And it means that 
you are identifying an issue and solving it, which is always a good thing to do if this is the kind of character you've been saddled with. Right. So they do indeed head to the crime scene, and it is gruesome, but like in kind of a visually vague way that that I really dug. Like Terrence textured more than detailed style. It implies more than it shows. So the couch, there are these spattered pink slashes in it, but they're not really detailed. So they just sort of have this implication of this gory murder without needing to show gore. Yeah, it does a lot with a little, and it builds this atmosphere really well. Mm-hmm. It also helps that Wild Child is is just overwhelmed with horror and disgust and has to just run out of the room gagging. Sabersuit doesn't give a shit. He's just analyzing what must have happened. Like, he's got Batman's detective vision in, in the Arkham games. Um, it's, it's a really cool detail, though. Like, Sabretooth, part of how he reconstructs where the killers must have gone, part of how he tracks them, is he finds the DNA of Yuri under the fingernails of another corpse they find, like a, a dock worker who was murdered by Yuri while Chop Chop was Chop Chopping. And so, yeah, I like that they're leaning into the um, the fact that these are both characters who are trackers. So, like, of course, that is heavy uh, in the plot's progression. Yeah, and they do then um, get in their car and drive to wherever they're going next, which, like, obviously they're not going to walk along with their noses on the ground, but it is quite funny. They're just like, I picked up his scent. Let's get in the Jeep. So, no, I mean, I think it could work fine. Like, these are both vaguely canine characters, so one of them drives, and the other just sticks his head out the window with his tongue hanging out. He's followed the scent that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So they take their car to a bar called The Bucket of Blood, where Sabretooth beats some information out of the, the patrons. If you're in the Marvel Universe and you name your bar The Bucket of Blood, I feel like this sort of thing is inevitable. I think it is. Maybe it's a bar for people who have trouble dealing with their psychic abilities. And so they just have the equivalent of spittoons lying around the bar for people to just exhale from their noses and just snort <laughs> a big scab into. Oh, man. I mean, spittoons are not terribly dignified in general, but I feel like the nasal spittoons at the psychic <laughs> bar would be even less so. Yeah. <laughs> In the the bar, you you have a a bit of an altercation takes place, which is of course the law. If uh, a superhero character goes to a bar, there must then be a fight. But the sound effects that they lay on here are sprapped, cracked, and pow, which I think are from the grim and gritty nineties version of the Rice Krispies ad. <laughs> I'm just imagining those elves like snowboarding down a mountain while slamming a Mountain Dew, and exactly. in heaven, like the silhouette of Adam X the Extreme just gives a big <laughs> thumbs up or maybe a hang ten symbol. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They do get to the woods where they do find the brothers who are, you know, continuing to well murder. That's sort of their jam. Um, and Wildchild comforts a dying police officer um, who's just begging Kyle Wildchild not to leave him, uh, in French, of course, because this is, you know, that part of, of Canada. And Wildchild responds in French. He's just being so just compassionate and considerate. Like, it really does emphasize the difference because Sabretooth, of course, is just charging into combat immediately. Mm, Sabretooth couldn't care less whether there are people on the scene who are upset or dying or anything because he's got his eye on the prize um i do think it is sweet of kyle to be um attempting at least to to speak in french although i think part of it is because in this part of canada legally all murder attempts that involve canadian characters have to be described in both english and french it's a kind of a a bylaw Mm -hmm. like those video game manuals i used to get confused by as a kid uh that's probably a more child appropriate than than murder it occurs to me so (laughs) that that worked out 
Uh, the fight does not go well, though. Wildchild ends up first drugged and then unconscious. Sabretooth gets knocked off a waterfall. Yeah, I think that's Chekhov's waterfall. Like, if a waterfall appears at the beginning of a fight, somebody has to go over it by the end. It's just a narrative law. I mean, in Canada or, or otherwise. And Sabretooth is found by Liesel, the sister of Lori, the woman who was killed. Uh, she'd actually chased the killers off with gunfire as our heroes were getting their asses kicked. And there's an interesting scene here as Sabretooth cautions her not to go down the path of revenge, of, you know, doing the eye for an eye thing. And she's like, dude, you're saying this? Yeah, when she's coming out with uh, an admonition against Sabretooth to, to not be... Um, heading down a murder path and he's telling her not to head down a murder path there is an element of pot and kettle to it but i mean he has uh, a good comeback to that of course don't you concern yourself with me honey i don't matter none i'm already damned and the less you know about me the better i think that really is quite illuminating as to what sabertooth is like sabertooth has this self-loathing which manifests, amongst other ways, as seeing himself as not being worth the effort of trying to save him. Yeah, it seems like he figures he's already, um, you know, there's no innocence left to destroy. He's already going to have a bad end. So, like, it almost seems like he's trying to do some of the bad necessary things so other people don't have to. And, I mean, also he just wants to murder a lot of people because he's saber-toothed. But, like, that seems to be kind of the... The almost moral uh, veneer to to why he does things the way he does them. Mm, Absolutely. It's very much the kind of uh, Sauron panel from that Spider-Man and the X-Men comic chorus. I I don't want to cure cancer. I want to disembowel people. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So our heroes, including Kyle, who wakes up and follows the sense of the other characters, uh, they head to the slaughterhouse that the brothers Yuri and Chop Chop are holed up in because... Because, of course, they are. Yeah, an abandoned slaughterhouse, no less. I mean, I would like very much to think that they were trying to find somewhere really on brand to hide out. And in the process of finding an abandoned slaughterhouse, they skipped over like a double tree in Ikea and an Apple store. Although it occurs to me, an Ikea would actually be an amazing setting for like a superhero, supervillain, cat and mouse story. Like, that would be great. You'd have to call the story like... Murder, and it has to be spelled M-U-R-D-R with uh, umlaut over the U. <laughs> Any given Marvel writer, if you're listening, you can have that one for free. <laughs> and Lysel does indeed try to shoot Yuri in the back with, uh, with her rifle. Uh, Sabretooth knocks the shot wide, and she sobs in relief, realizing she almost ended somebody's life. She almost killed someone. And there's kind of the implication here that Sabretooth was correct, that the innocent should stay innocent. Like, this story, I think it's kind of about Wild Child being on the edge, being, you know, a person who could fall either into the the side of revenge and bloodthirst or the side of more ethics and morality and forgiveness. And it almost seems like if Sabretooth is kind of the, the example on one end of that spectrum, the murder end, then Lysol is on the other. Like, it kind of reminds me of a Daredevil story I remember reading a while back where Spider-Man and the Punisher were used as those respective poles, where and Daredevil had to kind of decide whether he was going to go more in one direction or the other. It works. I think it also turns Lysol into a much less interesting, much less textured character than she might have been, because really she just exists to kind of be that that foil. Yeah, she's, she's essentially the little cartoon angel on Wellchild's shoulder, and Sabretooth's little cartoon devil on the other shoulder. 
there's mm-hmm. not a, not a massive amount of depth to be had in those roles. But you know, for a one shot, maybe that's fine. I think if I have an objection, it's just that of the two female characters in this story, like neither really gets much in the way of agency. And with this few characters, maybe that's okay, but it's still, I don't know, rub me the wrong way a little. Mm. Yeah, given that it's a kind of uh, negative buddy story between Wellchild and Sabretooth, uh, it kind of, I mean, the villains don't really get much fleshing out either, but um, you're the only two characters that get any kind of depth to them in this are, are Wellchild and Sabretooth. But that doesn't take away from the fact that this is a very bloodthirsty story in which there are two women, one of whom dies and one of whom cries. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well said. Well, Sabretooth steals some of the many painkiller pills that he knocks out of Yuri's hand, uh, and sure enough, after he just crams them in his mouth, doesn't even need to tilt his head back and drink a glass of water, uh, that's enough to get him through the shock collar zaps. He Yay. can kill again! Yay! Everybody, everybody's happy, dancing in the street. Sabretooth is able to murder again! Standing over Yuri's mangled corpse, a satiated Sabretooth lets the euphoria sweep over him, reveling in a perverted form of ecstasy. The question does come up, though, if he could have gotten through the shock collar just by necking a pack of anodin, then why exactly was he bothering titting about in the sewers with a bunch of snakes in, like up to his knees in water? I think he had to uh, complete that quest for the quest giver to give him the next quest, which was to find a bunch of drugs from a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, there is that. I mean, it, it, it's all going to be fine until he has to do the racing missions. Oh, man. Oh, those are so the frustrating. Worst the worst part. Any sort of redemptive arc Victor could have had, like, is just dashed as he learns to hate humanity even more because of that. <laughs> Meanwhile, Wildchild does successfully save Lysel from Chop Chop's Chop Chopping, and then he barely stops himself from beating Chop Chop to death as he holds him down. Sabretooth is all about this, of course. He is delighted that Wildchild is getting more violent. Wildchild, though, does manage to pull back at the last minute, saying, I don't care what you think of me. I refuse to stoop to your depths of depravity. And I swear by all that's holy, I won't let you goad me into becoming something I'm not, so stay out of this. Chop Chop's mine, and I'm bringing him in alive. Or at least that's the goal, because as Chop Chop runs away, he trips and impales himself on a meat hook, and that's that. Uh, It's real sad trombone stuff. Womp womp indeed. Uh, Sabretooth has just beaten Yuri to death because... There's an interesting um, parallel in the art here as well because you have on the same page um, Chop Chop leaping and um, Kyle reaching out and they're both in exactly the same pose but one of them is effectively reaching up to something better and one of them is reaching as they fall and they choose different paths, they meet different fates they're both combating savage urges one of them is choosing to lean into it one of them is choosing to deny it and uh, i think there's a deliberate parallel being drawn here by Terran and the art that is a really excellent point yeah um that's actually something i didn't catch but you're looking at you're totally right looking at it and i love it when you can get that i love when comics actually do the show don't tell when it's not just you know the narration describing exactly how you should be interpreting things that subtlety works so well uh, but Sabretooth is pleased. He's pretty sure that despite Wildchild's words, Wildchild does have that killer instinct. What he's even more pleased by is the fact that he kept a bunch of Yuri's magic painkiller pills. 
Yeah, this is one of those stories where an incredibly important plot element is set up in some completely random issue of something that's totally unrelated. Um, it's very much like at the end of uh, Secret Invasion, where um, it's, it's difficult to work out how on earth they managed to defeat the scrolls, unless you went and read the issue of Deadpool, in which Deadpool goes and gets the magic scroll killy rifle, which then gets used by Norman Osborn. It's like, what? why did you bury that extremely important plot point in this tie-in, the comedy tie-in with the comedy character? But anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it very much is a gotta-catch-em-all uh, comics reader's philosophy, which is a little frustrating at times. Like, at least give us a caption, editors. Come on. At least give us a see-the-now-classic-whatever-number-whatever. <laughs> but that brings us to X-Factor number 136, Nothing Lasts Forever. And this issue is written by Howard Mackey. It's penciled by Jeff Matsuda with inks by Art Tiber. Uh, it's colored by Glynis Oliver and letters are by Richard Starkins and Comicraft. Now, we said at the beginning that we were done with Operation Zero Tolerance, and I promise that we are. But this is sort of related. It, it's kind of an outro. It is. I, you know, I don't mind when they do that. If there is a big event, I feel like the universe should acknowledge it. But also, boy, howdy, this podcast has been covering Operation Zero Tolerance for a while. <laughs> yeah. So it, we start off at an Operation Zero Tolerance base in the middle of nowhere, where a figure in a hooded robe turns up and surprises the guard and the guard's really kind of impressive moustache with his equally impressive credentials. His credentials are so impressive that the guard lets them through, even though they don't match up with any credentials the guard has ever seen, which seems like an easily exploited loophole. Like, you're going to turn up and say to the guard, oh, no, the guard's like, oh, no, you can only come in here if you're level seven. And you go, oh, actually, I'm S rank. And they go, oh, okay, fine. Apparently that's good. Here's my identity card as the bikini inspector. So this Bikini Inspector is Bowser. That is the government jerk who's been doing terrible things to X-Factor for a while, who, last we saw him, got pulled into some kind of weird psychic hell dimension by Trevor Chase's Dreamin's last issue, but uh, I guess he got out and he's fine, and now he's got a cloak. Yeah. Um, The cloak obviously makes the full ensemble. It makes him look like Gargamel. It kind of does. But now that uh, Operation Zero Tolerance is given the green light, he and some guy in a sweater vest can simultaneously insert key cards into a machine and unleash the hounds on mutant kind. So the hounds, we haven't talked about them in a little bit. We were first introduced to the hounds in the Days of Future Past timeline. Rachel Summers was a hound. Those are mutants who were set to sent to track down other mutants for, you know, assorted types of persecution. We've been seeing that program building gradually in Howard Mackey's X-Factor run. I think that's the most compelling part of this run, the idea that, like, because of government decisions, because of anti-mutant hysteria, we are gradually moving toward this ultimate dystopian timeline of Days of Future Past. I wish the book did more of it, but every time it does a little bit, it still makes me happy, even if I know it will, it will never fully be realized. Yeah, I do like it when the X-Books lean into their possible futures because it, it, if days of future past is something which is never likely to happen then the significance of it kind of recedes but if you actually get indications that days of future past may be around the corner then yeah it, it becomes much more significant 100 percent. so one of their sleeper hounds has gone off the grid unfortunately any guesses as to which one that might be listeners 
If you guessed Sabretooth, then you win a no prize. <laughs> Sabretooth at this point, we cut back to him. He's giving a speech to the security cameras in his cell because he's nothing if not a drama queen. It's these sort of floating cameras that are powered by Kirby Crackle, which is kind of awesome. They, they look pretty rad. I, uh, I've never been much of a videographer, but if I was, those are the cameras I would want. Yeah, he's taunting Forge because Forge is the one who came up with the collar. And Forge is going to watch this back later. And, well, at least Sabretooth assumes he's going to watch this back later. He does plan on killing Forge. So I, I suspect he's hoping that For- Forge catches it on, I don't know, his tablet or something like that. It's very forward thinking. Um, but so he's he's taunting him with this new ability to withstand the shock collar. And it's purely achieved through the power of positive thinking and drugs and lots of them. This is uh, what Dare was warning us about in in the States back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. uh, This exact scenario. Yeah. And so we get a scene which is very representative of this run of X Factor. Wild Child is parkouring around Falls Edge with headphones and a giant ham. And as the narrator says... He enjoys bungee jumping from helicopters, long dirt bike rides down Mount Everest, and he has never aspired to normalcy. He is basically a human pog. <laughs> I gotta say, like, having just uh, covered that Sabretooth one-shot where Wild Child was effectively the main character, Howard Mackie and Jorge Gonzalez have very different takes on Wild Child. He's just, like, goofy in, in Mackie's X-Factor. Yeah, he's he's a, a sad goofy though. He's he's a sad clown. He's gonna go to the doctor, and the doctor's gonna tell him Pagliacci's in town. That kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yep. So he's going to uh, take Sabretooth, his daily ham. But on the way, there's all sorts of stuff gets in his road. Uh, one of them being his ex girlfriend Aurora from Alpha Flight, who shows up out of nowhere. To be all sexy-like after trying to kill him back in 116 for leaving her. He has a reaction here, which is a panel that we mentioned in passing earlier on, which is Jeff Matsuda at his most Matsudish, perhaps too Matsudish, if anything. He's got Welchild's nose is sort of scrunched into into his eyeball, and his lips are somewhere up around his cheekbone. And sort of sticking out, like, as, as I said before, like Mock from Rock and Roll. And it is really freakish. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of the level of visual distortion that you'd see in, 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 like, an old cartoon, like Ren and Stimpy. Like, I'm not against it, but it is just so extreme, so distorted, that it was kind of taking me out of, you know, the scene that was already rendered silly by the fact that he's carrying a giant ham through all of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe that is just wild child. Everything about him is extreme, including where his mouth is. <laughs> uh, but it's it comes down to Mystique in the, the next panel saying that she's sorry wild child is so ugly because it turns out it's not Aurora, it's Mystique. Ah, in disguise. Yep. What a dick. She uh, does that common mystique trick, and then another one of her common mystique tricks, which is making out with Forge. This book has been really leaning into the tension between them. And that's tension that doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, Destiny sort of predicted it, like, a decade before, back in Claremont's run. So I I appreciate that that's still a thing. I appreciate that it's still sort of progressing. It's desperately insensitive of Forge to do it. Like, Wildchild is literally still there. 
And he's just locking lips with the person who's just yelled at Wildchild about being ugly. And Forge has absolutely zero sense of team morale whatsoever. Like, I'm half expecting him to shoot someone with a power-removing gun on his way to lunch. This is not the first time this podcast has mentioned that X-Factor could really do with any sort of HR department. (laughs) Uh, So at the same time as this is going on, um, Polaris and Shard are training, and uh, one of them blasts the other through the wall because X-Factor. I really like this scene. Um, The two have kind of a heart-to-heart in the immediate aftermath of their wall-crashy fight. Like, Lorna's talking about hiding her depression, really wanting to live for herself now, and Shard's being super responsive, asking questions, reflectively listening. Shard's talking about missing having a real body and, like, maybe being interested in Wild Child. She's got other stuff to do. Like, it's nice seeing this kind of friendship. This is a lot of what I come to X-Books for, is not just all the punching and explosions and anti-mutant hysteria and even the metaphor— but it's that sense of camaraderie. It's that sense of friendship of every of any two characters just having their own unique dynamic between the two of them. It's nice to see here. Yeah, absolutely. And Shard is Shard's an interesting character because Shard is part of a trend in the nineties for hologram characters. I'm pretty sure that at a certain point, some American sci-fi TV writer saw an episode of Red Dwarf and decided that they needed hologram characters. And so it ran all the way through things like Andromeda and stuff like that as well. Um, Shard is walking along, mopping her forehead with a towel at the same time as she's saying that she doesn't need to shower because she doesn't sweat, which, I mean, she's really doing her best to fit in. It's a skeuomorphism. It's like uh, how in macOS, the calendar app had kind of this faux leather border, uh, like on the menu bar and stuff. You know, it's you want to you want to visually emulate the thing that you are replacing the functionality of. <laughs> I I can only assume. Uh, Sabretooth, it turns out, has broken out his collar by this point and starts hunting down each member of X Factor one at a time. Um, he takes out Wildchild. Wildchild comes into his cell with a ham. He then takes out Polaris and taunts her about being too goody two-shoes after their shared history in the Marauders when she was Malice. He swipes through Shard and escorporates her. And then um, he takes out Forge and Mystique, who are still kissing. How long have they been smooching for? This is like a 10-minute kiss at a minimum. <laughs> I mean, when you have that much tension, when you have tension for literally a decade of comics, it's going to it's gonna take a while to kind of, you know, work your way through that. Yeah, I suppose. But he takes the, the mickey out of them for not realizing that he was a sleeper agent. And then as he finishes up the fight with Wildchild, who comes back for a second shot. You know, in a different time, a different world, you and me could have made one heck of a good team. And as he goes to leave... Victor obliquely threatens Trevor Chase, who we mentioned earlier, and that's Destiny's creepy grandson. And that's been a kind of a dangling plot thread for a few issues, and we're going to pick up on that next issue. And Val Cooper, at this exact moment, is just arriving in her car. She drove there as soon as she possibly could when she learned about uh, Sabretooth's activation. She tried to phone, but because of various things, including weather and technology and magic and narrative convenience... Uh, It was something she just was not able to do. She wasn't able to get through, and so she was too late. She gets back and finds the team in a pile covered in blood, maybe dead, under a blood-scrawled note that reads, Welcome home, Val. The hounds are loose. 
And that takes us to X Factor number 137, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. This issue is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Andy Smith, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Kevin Summers, and lettered by Richard Starkings in Comicraft and Colia Fuchs. And we open in a hospital near Washington, D.C., where the quiet of the night is shattered by a bunch of very pouched government agents, like you do, bringing in some very badly wounded mutants. Where the dying days of pouches as an accessorizing choice in comics, but they're obviously still very useful for uh, superheroes, supervillains, and government agents if they want to bring along, you know, mace or their keys or a sandwich or spare batteries or really anything that they, they might need, a tape measure. You never know when you're going to need one of those. It's, it's like having a Swiss army knife, except you split all the things up individually and carry them in separate pockets. I always wanted a character to reach into their pouch. Well, at all, because nobody ever does, except Deadpool occasionally. And it turns out they just got the completely wrong one. They just pull out, like, an umbrella or a bicycle horn or whatever. Yeah, I'd love it if one of these days one of these characters just trades in the pouches for just, like, cargo shorts. And they've just got a dozen pockets instead. You know, (laughs) Iceman did wear cargo shorts and only cargo shorts for a while. Maybe that was why. (laughs) He predicted the pouch epidemic. Exactly. So these near corpses are brought in by Val Cooper, of course. She did the best she could when she showed up. And by a character we haven't met before, this is Major Edmund Atkinson. That's Val Cooper's ex-husband. This is his first appearance. He looks kind of like a younger GW Bridge, and he's just a really good guy. He's just a character who we get an immediate good impression of, and that does not change. He, he comes in and immediately decides he's going to do Val a solid which is a good way to endear him to the readers, I think. Very you know, much if, so. If, if you're going to be an emissary of the government in a book where it's been well established that the government is kind of shady, then you need to have that character instantly align themselves with the heroes. Mm-hmm. Very much so. As for the other heroes, uh, we got to talk about their appearances. We mentioned they were all beaten up and bloody and stuff. And indeed, their costumes have been almost entirely shredded, except for, you know, the the important parts. But what kind of struck me, I don't even know how to describe this. Like, both Polaris and Mystique, the two female members of the team who were not discorporated as holograms, they have these, like, bandage bras, almost? I, I don't know how that would really work medically. It, it's like somebody was going for one of those sexy mummy Halloween costumes. I, I don't know. I guess... I guess just, like, splash yourself randomly with a drink. The bandages are so haphazardly applied. It's very much like how I wrap my Christmas presents, frankly. (laughs) Yes, Sam, I'm really bad at that. (laughs) Uh, Silly outfits aside, like, this is not good. These characters are severely injured. Uh, Forge, uh, being a decent leader at this point, at least, uh, demands that the rest of the team be treated before him gets on Val's case about why she let the government put Sabretooth on the team, and then his heart stops. And uh, the various doctors uh, do their best to keep him and everybody else alive. Shard, like we said, is just gone. Like, she got depixelated, which is a term I love, and has not been able to come back. Uh, Al, like you alluded to, apparently Sabretooth managed to slash her extra good, I guess. I don't know. It's it's unclear. It is a bit weird. Like, Shard's hologrammatic nature and how it works isn't totally clear because she can obviously interact physically with objects and with people unless we're to believe that she was manifesting a holographic towel earlier on but saber tooth can swipe straight through her like she's a ghost i mean i don't know whether that is 
you know, he's able to slash her so hard that she discorporates, like she's held together with some kind of optical surface tension or something. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I suspect this will be explained at least a little bit. Like, the series isn't over yet. I'm pretty sure Shard comes back. Um, This is not an era that I'm, I'm super familiar with, so I don't actually remember. Yeah, I think she I think she turns up again and brings various members of uh, Xavier's underground enforcers with her in just a few issues' time. Oh, right. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Classic characters for the ages. So Eden comes in to comfort Val and it tells her that she had no choice but to follow orders. Yeah, you and me, Ed, the good little soldiers, always put our orders and our jobs before everything. That's why our marriage never stood a chance. And now look at us. Do you know how much trouble we're both in? And Ed is incredibly comforting and also incredibly competent. He promises that he and his men will protect X-Factor. And by the way, there was nothing wrong with our marriage. We just had different career tracks. Thanks, Ed. I really need you here. I I like them. Like, they're just instantly likable as a couple. Like, I'm invested in whatever their relationship has or has not turned into. Like, it feels very lived in. You get this sense of history, really, without going into it any more than we just did. Yeah, I, I really like him as a character. And it's a shame that he's not a character that's really shown up as much of a central feature of Val Cooper's life since then. It's true. Mystique doesn't buy any of this, though. She is furious at Val Cooper for, like, a lot of reasons. You always came across the good girl, and here you are just as cold as me. You let that psycho creep be thrown in with these pathetic little lambs, and now you're going to hang around feigning guilt for all you've done. We've had our criticisms of Howard Mackey's writing, but sometimes he really does get these characters. And Mystique is not wrong. I mean, she's not being particularly sensitive at this point in time. But apart from the fact she's kind of taking sniping broadsides at, at Val, she's kind of right. I mean, Val did follow orders to put Sabretooth on the team. And even now she's saying she doesn't know why she did it. And Mystique outright tells Val, listen, if you let these doctors fix me up, I am coming back for you. I am getting my revenge on you. And this whole thing is just so tense. Ed's soldiers are sworn to secrecy, and the bad storm outside is going to slow down any aerial pursuit by the government or Operation Zero Tolerance. But they're going to be found. The hounds are going to find them. OZT's troops are going to find them. Something's going to happen. And sure enough, the storm starts to break, and those government troops approach, and Val orders ed to withdraw his men she doesn't want any more blood on her hands ed of course says well okay but i'm staying with you yeah i mean ed has clearly been watching val and he knows from val's entire career to date that going against his government issues instructions will have really little to no long-term effect on his career prospects <laughs> it's true it's true Bowser, at this point, has doffed his cloak and has gone with a bunch of troops to Falls Edge, X-Factor's base. And there he gets a call. It's Val Cooper saying, hey, I want to turn myself in. Come meet me at this hospital. At that point, though, Val's backup shows. She sent the troops away, yes, but she figured she would obliquely call for help. It is Havoc and Fatal, two members of the new Brotherhood of Mutants who, as she knew they would, intercepted the message that she sent to Bowser. So Havoc, of course, is a longtime member of X-Factor. 
He was on it for most of its post-original 5X-Men incarnation. Now he's leading a team of quasi-villains, may or may not be semi-brainwashed. We'll, we'll get to all that. And uh, here he is, along with Fatal, the only member of the Brotherhood that most people remember, except for Dark Beast. Yeah, although I have to also point out as a former X-Man reader that X-Man was very briefly also a member of the Brotherhood for, I think, about 10 pages. Yep, and it, it didn't go well. They they tried to kill him at the end, and then some sexy ladies found him, as I recall. Yeah, it's always the way with X Men. You you can't turn round without bumping into sexy ladies <laughs> who all love love this shirtless teenager. So after assuring Val that he is not misguided or brainwashed, really, he promises Havoc has Fatal teleport him and. X-Factor the team away to safety. Uh, except Mystique, who's already gone missing because that's, you know, one of her tricks. Surprise there. And that just leaves Val and Ed to stay behind to hopefully rejoin up with the government and stop the Hound program from the inside. And at the same time as that's all happening, Sabretooth is plotting his own course with Trevor Chase, as we mentioned in the last issue. Um, he's this... Well, he's supposed to be this kind of cute kid, but he's actually a deeply sinister kid. Yup. He has these, like, powers to manifest nightmares, and he, you know, if he doesn't get his way, he does some Children of the Corn-style evilness to try to, you know, make things go in his direction. And Trevor Chase's deal is that his mother is Destiny's daughter, I think? I think so, yeah. Yeah, definitely a descendant of Destiny, which means, of course, uh, a relative of Mystique, since Mystique and Destiny are married. And that was justly retconned to have been the case for a long time, including during this time, or at least when Destiny was previously alive. Yeah, Trevor calls her Auntie Raven in earlier issues, so, yeah. And Sabretooth murders Trevor's parents. He just kills them brutally. Like, part of this is a mission he's on, but part of this is just sadism it's just a way to hurt mystique after she refused to join him and there is some good sort of uh indirect violence kind of like we described in the Sabretooth one shot uh there's a panel of Sabretooth's silhouetted arm ripping upward with silhouetted blood spattering behind the claws uh it's very effective without being too in your face gory and it sucks like trevor's parents were decent people even if trevor himself is a creep but before Sabretooth can also kill Trevor, the boy is taken by Stone, who's a big guy made of, uh, well, stone. And not to be confused with Greystone, who is a member of the aforementioned Xavier Underground Enforcers who are going to turn up in a few issues. Eventually, they're going to join the team. Stone tells Sabretooth, hey, look, dude, either you can join the Hounds or we're going to hunt you down and kill you. And Sabretooth doesn't even hesitate. He's immediately just like, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll come with you. It would be very interesting to have a conversation with your boss. But before he does that, he goes back into the house and just carries out a bit of extraneous corpse desecration as part of the message that he wants to send Mystique. I mean, on the upside, I don't think any X-team is ever going to trust Sabretooth to be on it again. Uh, psych, they, they totally will. That's going to happen more. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, at that point, he will have had his morality inverted by the Sixes-slash-Axis crossover. It'll be a whole thing. We'll get to that in, like, a million years. So there we go. We are back with X-Factor. We've checked in on them, um, sort of during Operation Zero Tolerance, which they only obliquely interact with. And we're getting ever closer to the end of that series. We actually don't have all that many issues left of it. Yeah, I think it was it runs to 150 or something along those lines. 
149, weirdly. Strange place to stop it. That's so bizarre. I can only imagine that they'd run out of foil in the Marvel offices, and so they were like, well, we can't do 150 issues of X-Factor. It'll bankrupt us again. Oh, it's like giving uh, an employee only enough hours so that they can't get benefits. Exactly. If they were to do 150 issues of X-Factor, they'd be able to take an hour for lunch instead of 30 minutes. <laughs> Damn it, Marvel. <laughs> Well, we have questions about that, and listeners, you have questions as well. So GPAC3 asks on Tumblr, So I know Bastion is what happened to Nimrod after he went into the Siege Perilous, but which Nimrod? Is it the same one that Orcus built, or is it the one that Forge built in an alternate future in the Academy X story, or are those the same Nimrod? That is an excellent question, because yes, this part is confusing. So the way I look at it, there are basically two Nimrods, or maybe 2.5, I'll, I'll get to that. So the first one is the one we've seen the most of. That's the one from Earth 811, the Days of Future Past Future. That's the one who followed Rachel Summers when she went back in time to figure out why her timeline wasn't fixed after Senator Kelly's uh, assassination was prevented in the Days of Future Past storyline. He was the one that fought the Hellfire Club, fought the X-Men a bunch, you know, the main one. So one weird thing, and something you alluded to— so on his way back to the present of Earth-616, we find in a new X-Men slash New Mutants Academy X story that this Nimrod kind of undershot and ended up in our future, but not as far future as Days of Future Past. He met up with Forge, murdered a bunch of people, and then Forge sent him too far in the other direction, too far in the past. And that's kind of what was going on with that New Mutants Academy X story that you referred to. So all of that is one Nimrod. This Nimrod also created like a 0.5 version of itself because before this Nimrod became uh, Bastion, before he merged with Master Mold even, he inserted his programming into a military base. We saw that Nimrod prototype show up in an issue of X-Force, I think number 35, way back in the day. But again, all kind of the same Nimrod, all from the Days of Future Past, Future. The second one was the one that Orcus built. Kind of unrelated, except to showcase the inevitability of the Sentinel program creating Nimrod. The inevitability, thus, of the Days of Future Past timeline coming to pass. We talked about that earlier this episode. Like, that's a good thread. The closer you get to Days of Future Past, the more you think, the more you know that things are going really, really wrong. So, uh, there you go. There's an overly complicated answer to your simple question, like we do. Poor old Nimrod, though. Like, he's just trying to get to one particular point in time, and he's just ping-ponging around through the timelines. He's like Sam Beckett, just hoping that his next leap will be the leap where he can murder a bunch of mutants. I can only hope that Nimrod gets a less ignominious end than the finale of that series. <laughs> Gene emailed us to ask, it recently came to my attention whilst watching holiday movies with my kid that in 1982, Marvel Productions released The Grinch Grinches the Cat in the Hat. With that revelation, what potential is there for 40 years delayed merger or crossover of the Marvel and Dr. Seuss universes? Maybe a Seuss-esque narration of X-Men trials through Murder World? Or Rogue inadvertently comes into physical contact with the Grinch, causing her to manifest a great disdain for major religious holidays and an overall shitty attitude? Yeah, I think there are a few different ways they could go with this. I mean, you've got very famously, of course, there is this capricious troublemaker character with the distinctive headgear and an entourage of frequently interchangeable hench beings who swings between destruction and rebuilding. I mean, the cat in the hat takes Cape Citadel has a real potential, I think. 
it is so easy to picture the cover of the first issue of X-Men, but that. (laughs) Alternatively, you could have uh, a war between rival X-Force bootleg merch manufacturers, where sides are drawn between those with Shatterstar on their bellies and those without. The Shatterstar-bellied sneeches. Exactly. Or the rhyming adventures of Bill and Don, one lobster, two lobster, green lobster, blue lobster. I love all of this. Like, I know it was fun in the Daydreamers miniseries when the characters went to, like, a Dr. Susie land, but no, no, your ideas are better. (laughs) And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com, and please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the X-Men come back from space, only to be captured by a giant lizard cat, a cave woman who ages in reverse, and a robot in a maid outfit. Comics. Really needs you.